Welcome back, friends. Bill Creasy here with this week's episode of Scripture Uncovered. Episode number 162. As many of you know, I just finished a major rewrite of our Gospel According to Matthew course, and we finished teaching it just a couple of weeks ago for the Spring Quarter Featured course on LogosBibleStudy.com. I had a very good question toward the end of that course on Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 to 53, where we read that after Jesus' resurrection, a number of prophets and holy men came out of their tombs and wandered about in Jerusalem. Well, what was that all about? Pete Giordano, a longtime Logos student, asked that question, and that's the subject of today's Scripture Uncovered. Hope you enjoy it. Here we go. The Harrowing of Hell. I was asked by one of our Logo students about Matthew 27, verses 50 to 53, four verses that only occur in Matthew. And let me read them to you. Jesus cried out again in a loud voice and gave up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked, rocks were split, tombs were opened, and the bodies of many saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming forth from their tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now, crucified people typically died in three to five days, and when they expired, they did so quietly, their breath slowing and barely perceptible, their heart rate diminishing, and then finally stopping. But here, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, not with a hollow man's whimper, but with a great bang, a loud victory cry, as it were. And with that, the veil of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom a violent rending by God from above, giving access to the Holy of Holies, to God himself, once and for all. The veil in the temple separated the holy place, which contained the menorah, the altar of incense, and the table of showbread, from the Holy of Holies, the dwelling place of God, which, prior to the destruction of Solomon's temple in 586 BC, had contained the Ark of the Covenant. When Jesus died, the veil was torn in two from top to bottom, giving access to God once and for all through Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. And at that moment, all of creation convulsed. We read, the earth quaked, rocks were split, tombs were opened, and the bodies of many saints who had fallen asleep were raised. In our Logos Bible study course on the Gospel according to Matthew, Lesson 24, we learn that Israel sits squarely on the Dead Sea fault line between the African and Arabian tectonic plates, producing frequent earthquakes, some of them massive. One of the largest struck in A.D. 746, destroying most of the towns and villages surrounding the Sea of Galilee, leveling Jericho, and causing severe damage in Jerusalem. Geologists 
Jefferson B. Williams and Marcus J. Schwab studied three core samples from the beach adjacent to En Gedi on the western shore of the Dead Sea. And the samples indicate a massive seismic event between the years AD 26 and 36. An event that could well have been the earthquake described here in Matthew 27, 50 to 53. When the earthquake struck, we read that rocks were split, tombs were opened, and the body of, bodies of many saints who had fallen asleep were raised. The western slope of the Mount of Olives is a vast cemetery containing over 70,000 graves, some dating as far back as the time of King David. Tradition claims that the prophets Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are buried on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem as well as Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom Jesus had earlier accused the religious leaders of having murdered between the temple and the altar, as we read in Matthew 23 at verse 35. Jesus' words in Matthew 27, 50-53 recall the famous Valley of Dry Bones scene in the book of Ezekiel. There in Ezekiel 37, 5-10, we read, Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Listen, I will make breath enter you so you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow over you, cover you with skin, and put breath into you so you may come to life. And then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I, Ezekiel, prophesied as I had been commanded. A sound started up. As I was prophesying, rattling like thunder, the bones came together, bone joining to bone. As I watched, sinews appeared on them. Flesh grew over them. Skin covered them on top, but there was no breath in them. Then God said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man. Say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, From the four winds come, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath entered them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, a vast army. Whoa! Ezekiel had been taken captive to Babylon in 597 BC, and in 585 BC, he learned that Jerusalem had fallen to Nebuchadnezzar less than a year earlier, in the summer of 586 BC. Ezekiel's vision is thus symbolic and prophetic, in that it prefigures the Jews' return from Babylonian captivity under the Persian king Cyrus the Great in 539 BC, an event only 46 years in the future, to once again occupy Jerusalem and their land. Importantly, it does not refer to a future eschatological resurrection of the dead. Nor does Matthew's. Matthew's account may be literal, that those raised after Jesus' resurrection then entered the holy city and appeared to many, in which case it's rather odd that such an astounding event is not mentioned in our other Gospels, nor does it appear in any of our historical records. Or, like the Valley of Dry Bones, it may be symbolic, Jesus being the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead as St. Paul writes to the Colossians 
in Colossians 1, verse 18. If the latter is the case, if it is symbolic, then Matthew offers a powerful prophetic vision following the curtain in the temple being torn in two from top to bottom, giving access to God once and for all through Jesus' redemptive death, burial, and resurrection. In either case, we should note that two days pass between Jesus' death and resurrection. Two days until the resurrected ones enter the city and appear to many, whether literal or symbolic. So what happened during those two days? Ignatius of Antioch, a second century bishop of Syrian Antioch, home church to St. Paul and St. Barnabas, wrote an epistle to the church of the Magnesians. Magnesia is on the Meander River. It was located in a fertile commercial triangle of Prene, Ephesus, and Tralles. Ignatius had been arrested during the reign of the Emperor Trajan, who reigned from AD 98 to 117. And he was being escorted to Rome, where he would be martyred. En route, Ignatius wrote seven letters, one to the Ephesians, two the Magnesians, three Tralians, four the Romans, five the Philadelphians, six the Smyrnians, and seven a personal letter to his friend Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, who had been a student of the Apostle John. In his letter to the Magnesians, Ignatius writes, those who lived by the ancient customs, that is, the Jewish customs, attained a fresh hope. They no longer observed Saturday, but Sunday, the Lord's Day. For on that day, life arose for us through Christ and through his death. Now, some deny this mystery, but through it, we have received our faith, and because of it, we persevere that we may prove to be disciples of our only teacher, Jesus Christ. Christ. And notice very importantly, he continues, even the prophets awaited him as their teacher, since they were his first disciples in spirit. And that is why Christ, whom they rightly awaited, raised them from the dead when he appeared. Now Ignatius, only one degree of separation from the apostle John and two degrees of separation from Jesus himself, tells us that between Jesus' death and resurrection, he raised from the dead the righteous prophets who had preceded him. Peter perhaps alludes to the same thing when he writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, 18-22, For Christ also suffered for sins once, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might lead you to God. Put to death in the flesh, he was brought to life in the Spirit. In it, he also went to preach to the spirits in prison, who had once been disobedient while God patiently waited in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few persons, eight in all, were saved through water. This, writes Peter, prefigured baptism, an appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Notice that Peter said, In it, 
he also went to preach to the spirits in prison. And Ephesians adds its support. In Ephesians 4, 7 through 9, we read, Grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, He ascended on high and took prisoners captive. He gave gifts to men. And importantly, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? The harrowing of hell, as it was later called, was picked up and developed by theologians throughout the early church. St. Melito, who lived from around 100 to 180 AD, was Bishop of Sardis, and he preached a homily on Holy Saturday, the day Jesus lies in the tomb, in which he says, What is happening? Today there is a great silence over the earth, a great silence and stillness. A great silence because the king sleeps. The earth was in terror and still because God slept in the flesh and raised up those who were sleeping from the ages. God has died in the flesh, and the underworld has trembled. Truly, he goes to seek out our first parent like a lost sheep. He wishes to visit those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. He goes to free the prisoner Adam and his fellow prisoner Eve from their pains. He who is God and Adam's son. St. Irenaeus, who lived from around 130 to 202, wrote on the harrowing of hell in Against Heresies. Tertullian, who lived from 155 to 220, wrote in a treatise on the soul. Hippolytus, who lived from 170 to 235 in his treatise on Christ and Antichrist. Origen, who lived from 185 to 253 in his Against Celsus, and in his commentary on the Epistle of St. Paul to the Romans. St. Augustine, who lived from 354 to 430 in letter number 164, and Gregory the Great, who lived from 540 to 604 in Registrum Epistolarum, book seven, letter 15. The harrowing of hell, in which Jesus brings out of the underworld all those righteous men and women of Scripture who predeceased him, including John the Baptist, the Old Testament patriarchs, David and Solomon, the good kings of Judah, and there weren't many, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joash, Amaziah, Uzziah, Hezekiah, and Josiah. And one might even argue the virtuous pagans of old. Heraclitus, Parmenides, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, Trajan, and Virgil. Justin Martyr, who lived from around AD 100 to 165, proposed in his chapter 46 of his first apology, where he argues that since Jesus is the incarnation of the eternal Logos, in the beginning was the word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and lived among us, then anyone 
born prior to Jesus, who lived a virtuous life consistent with the eternal Logos, responded fully to Christ with the limited knowledge that he or she had at the time. According to Justin Martyr, the virtuous pagans who responded in such a way were thus grandfathered in to the plan of salvation. We have a 14th century fresco in the Kora Church in Istanbul, Turkey, which offers an icon of the restoration between God and fallen humanity achieved by Christ's redemptive death, burial, and resurrection. In it, the first Adam and the new Adam come face to face. The redemptive power of Christ's resurrection draws Adam and Eve from the darkness of the grave into the light of life. Broken locks and chains litter the ground beneath Jesus' feet, no longer having the power to bind souls. Satan lies crushed, bound, and defeated in the very depths of hell. The underworld, Sheol or Gehenna, is not destroyed, but its power to bind humanity is. The idea of of a descent to the underworld, such as Jesus makes, is a fairly common motif in mythology and classical literature. In the 18th century BC epic of Gilgamesh, Enkidu, Gilgamesh's sidekick, isn't that a great name? Enkidu. <laughs> Gilgamesh's sidekick journeys to the underworld in the final fragmentary tablet 12 of the epic, titled Gilgamesh, Enkidu, and the Netherworld. At the opening of Tablet 12, Gilgamesh has lost some valuable items, gifts, from the goddess Ishtar. They have fallen through a crack in the earth and dropped into the underworld. Enkidu volunteers to retrieve them. But Enkidu must follow the rules if he hopes to return. Number one, do not wear clothes of purple or red. Number two, shun makeup that presents a pleasing face. Number three, take no weapons. Number four, go naked, filthy, and tearful. Number five, be quiet and distant to anyone you meet. Number six, greet no girl with a kiss. Number seven, hold no child's hand and strike no boy. In short, be as inconspicuous as possible. Of course, Enkidu, as was his wont, breaks all the rules, and he's trapped in the underworld, which becomes his eternal home. Gilgamesh mourns Enkidu, who went to the underworld in his place. But the god Ea sends the warrior Nergal, who guides Gilgamesh halfway through the bowels of the earth into the pit of hell, where he meets a forlorn Enkidu, who says, if you wish to sit for a brief time, I will describe where I do stay. All my skin and all my bones are dead now. All my skin and all my bones are now dead. Oh no, cried Gilgamesh, oh no. And Gilgamesh asks, have you seen a brother crying among relatives who chose to ignore his prayers? To which Enkidu replies, Oh, yes, 
He brings bread to the hungry from the dumps of those who feed their dogs with food they keep from people. And he eats trash that no other man would want. The fragmentary book 12 ends on that sad note. In Gilgamesh, retrieving lost items provides the impetus for a journey to the underworld. In Homer's Odyssey, gaining information motivates the quest. After the Ten-Year Trojan War, which ran from around 1285 to 1275 BC, Odysseus journeys home by ship to his kingdom in Ithaca, longing to rejoin his wife Penelope and his son Telemachus. The journey is only 565 nautical miles, but Odysseus meanders thousands of miles, encounters numerous adventures, loses his entire crew, and spends 10 years at sea before finally arriving home, only to find his kingdom in complete disarray his wife relentlessly pursued by obnoxious suitors, and his son believing Odysseus is dead. During the journey, Odysseus seeks advice from the blind Theban prophet Tiresias, who Odysseus learns has died. To speak with Tiresias, Odysseus must journey to the underworld to find him. In the Odyssey, the underworld is a dark, grim place with souls flitting about, squeaking and gibbering like bats. To speak with them, Odysseus must make the proper sacrifices and libations, pouring blood into a pool to attract the dead. For as we read in Leviticus 17, verse 11, the life of a creature is in the blood. Upon drinking the blood, the dead become sentient, and speak to Odysseus. He learns from Tiresias that Poseidon, the god of the sea, is angry with Odysseus for blinding Poseidon's son, Polyphemus, and Poseidon is seeking revenge, stirring up the sea, sinking Odysseus's ships, and taking revenge on his crew. Tiresias gives Odysseus sage advice about placating Poseidon so Odysseus can make it home safely. While in the underworld, Odysseus meets many others who have died as well. Elpinor, one of Odysseus's men who recently died and has not yet received a proper burial. Fellow king and warrior Agamemnon, who was murdered by his own wife and her lover. Achilles, the ancient world's greatest warrior. Heracles, Tantalus, and Odysseus's own mother, who he learns has died of grief over missing Odysseus. Odysseus says to her, What form of death overcame you? What laid you low, some long, slow illness? Or did Artemis, showering arrows, come with her painless shafts and bring you down? To which Anticlea, his mother, responds, It was my longing for you, my shining Odysseus you and your quickness, you and your gentle ways that tore away my life that had been so sweet. Odysseus is responsible for his own mother's death. Odysseus came to the underworld seeking advice about his journey home, 
but he receives much more. Odysseus leaves the underworld, understanding his responsibility to his people, his family, and his crew. He learns what it means to be truly a king, a husband, and a father. Odysseus emerges from the underworld, reborn, newly equipped to re-engage the world of the living and to take his rightful place in the pantheon of ancient heroes. Virgil follows in Homer's footsteps with the Aeneid. The epic story of Aeneas, a Trojan warrior who fled the fall of Troy and travels to Italy, where he becomes the progenitor of the Roman people. Written between 29 and 19 BC, Book 6 of the Aeneid sees Aeneas land on the Italian shore near modern-day Naples. There, he visits the temple of Apollo and meets the Sibyl, a priestess of Apollo. Aeneas prays that Apollo allow the Trojans to set on Latium, but the Sibyl warns Aeneas that trouble awaits him and his people, conflict on the scale of the Trojan War, and enemies as skilled and lethal as Achilles. Aeneas asks the Sibyl if she can grant him passage into Dis, the underworld, that he might consult with his dead father's spirit. After passing an initiation rite that wins him the golden bow, the key to entering and exiting the underworld, the Sibyl leads Aeneas to the Acreon River, where the infernal ferryman, Charon, delivers the newly arrived dead across the water and into the underworld. There, Aeneas hears the dreadful wailing of thousands upon thousands of souls who await judgment before Minos. In Homer's underworld, there is no judgment, just gray souls wandering about and longing to be alive again. In Virgil's underworld, moral and ethical scores are settled, punishments are doled out, and rewards are granted. Virgil's underworld exhibits a clear architectural design with a downward trajectory. Aeneas comes first to the fields of mourning, a kind of limbo where those who never fully experienced life dwell. Infants, the unjustly condemned, suicides, and those who died for love all wander about aimlessly. Here, Aeneas meets the passionate and volatile Dido, with whom he had a blistering and doomed love affair at Carthage. Both caught in the throes of fiery passion and lust, Aeneas finally breaks free and continues his quest for a new homeland, a resurrected Troy on the rich and fertile soil of Italy. Dido goes mad, shrieking about her palace, clawing and clamoring. As Aeneas leaves to board his ship, Dido glared at him askance her eyes roving over him head to foot with a look of stony silence, till abruptly she cries out in a blaze of fury, No goddess was your mother! No Dardanus sired your line! You traitor! You liar! Three, four times over she beat her lovely breast, she ripped at her golden hair, and, Oh my God, she cries, will the stranger just sail off and make a mockery of our realm? 
Will no one rush to arms, come streaming out of a whole city, hunt him down? Race to the docks, land the, uh, launch the ships. Go quick, bring fire, hand out weapons, bend to the oars. Oh, what, what, what am I saying? Where, where am I? In the end, Dido flings herself on the massive bed that she and Aeneas had shared, a bed now perched atop a funeral pyre. There she plunges a sword, a Trojan sword, into her breast over and over again, and the pyre is set ablaze. Exit Dido. When Aeneas meets the shade of Dido in the fields of mourning, he says, rather stupidly, Oh, I heard that you were dead. Was it I who caused your death? Unmoved, wearing a look of stony silence, Dido simply turns and walks away, disappearing into a dark wood where the shade of her dead husband awaits. Aeneas continues on through the field of heroes where he sees many casualties of the Trojan War. And from there he enters the blessed groves where the good wander about in peace and comfort. At last, Aeneas meets his father, Anchises, who congratulates Aeneas on making the difficult journey and who answers his questions about how the dead are assigned places in the underworld and about how the good attain residence in the Elysian fields. Virgil's dis, his underworld, is obviously a pre-Christian concept of the afterlife, but it's a big step beyond Homer and a giant leap beyond Gilgamesh. With all, what all three have in common though is permanence. Once ensconced in the underworld, no one leaves. The dead check in, but they don't check out. Dante, conversely, gives us a profoundly Christian view of the afterlife in his Divine Comedy. Nonetheless, Dante draws heavily on Virgil, who serves as Dante's guide through the nine downward circles of the Inferno and the seven-story climb up the mountain of the Purgatorio, relinquishing him at the top to Beatrice, who then leads Dante through the spheres of the Paradiso, handing him off to St. Bernard of Clairvaux for the final sprint to the beatific vision. The Divine Comedy begins with Dante at midlife, lost in a dark wood. And I'd be willing to bet that many of us, including me, can relate to that. Dante was born in Florence, Italy in 1265. And although he writes the Divine Comedy between 1308 and 1321, he sets his poem in 1300, when Dante himself was 35 years old, midway in the span of a biblically-oriented life of 70 years, or 80 for those who are strong, as Psalm 90 verse 10 tells us. As the poem opens, Dante has strayed from the straight path and is lost. But as he wanders, he sees a hilltop shawled in morning rays of light sent from the planet that leads men straight ahead on every road. Dante begins to climb toward the light. 
But suddenly, three creatures block the way. A leopard, a great lion, and a she-wolf. The creatures symbolize the three categories of sin that block Dante's progress toward the light, that is, toward God. Number one, the sins of incontinence, that is, passions of the body that overwhelm the mind. Number two, sins of violence against oneself and against others. And number three, the much more complex and disturbing sins of fraudulence, that is, treachery, destroying the life of a friend, and so on. The three creatures correspond to the three descending levels of hell through which Dante must pass before arriving at the mountain of purgatory and from there onward to paradise. But Dante cannot make the journey alone. He's lost and he needs a guide, someone experienced, someone with reason and spiritual maturity. Escaping the three creatures, Dante writes, while I was rushing down to that low place, my eyes made out a figure coming toward me of one grown faint, perhaps from too much silence. And when I saw him standing in this wasteland, have pity on my soul, I cried to him, whichever you are, shade or living man. No longer living man, though once I was, he said, and my parents were from Lombardy, both of them were Mantuans by birth. I was born, though somewhat late, sub-Hulio, and lived in Rome when good Augustus reigned, when still the false and lying gods were worshipped. I was a poet, and sang of that just man, son of Anchises, who sailed off from Troy after the burning of proud Ilium. Here, Dante meets Virgil his guide through the underworld, as well as his poetic mentor in the secular world in which Dante lived. On their descent through hell, through the sins of incontinence, violence, and fraudulence, the circles become more and more circumspect. In Dante's imagination, hell is like a great inverted cone, wide at the top, but more and more narrow in the descent. John Milton writes in Paradise Lost that God hurled Satan, headlong flaming from the ethereal sky, with hideous ruin and combustion down to bottomless perdition, there to dwell in adamantine chains and penal fire who durst defy the omnipotent to arms. Think of Satan hitting the ground, burrowing deeper and deeper until coming to a stop at the very bottom, at the inverted cone of hell. That's the image, one of narrowing. St. Augustine wrote in his City of God that sin is a state of being incurvitatus in se, that is, of curving in on oneself. The deeper you go into sin, the more and constricted you become. And in Dante's hell, the deeper you go, the colder it gets. There's fire and brimstone at the top, but freezing ice at the bottom. Until at the very bottom where Satan dwells, Dante writes in a memorable image, 
Down here I stood on souls fixed under ice. I tremble as I put this into verse. To me, they looked like straws worked into glass. Once in hell, from which no man escapes, Virgil leads Dante as they climb up Satan's loins and begin ascending, a kind of topsy-turvy world, to the foot of purgatory, a seven-story mountain. Purgatory is not a place of punishment of fire and brimstone. Rather, it's a hospital for the sick, where sinners recuperate and are healed. Christ died for our sins once and for all. And once we accept him as our Savior, our sins are forgiven totally and completely, period. But we still retain the scars, if you will, of our sinful natures, the residual wounds of what caused us to sin to begin with. Purgatory is a school for sinners, a place where one prepares to enter into the beatific vision. As Virgil guides Dante up the seven-story mountain, each terrace addresses one of the seven deadly sins in order from the most to the least serious. The most being pride, then envy, wrath, sloth, greed, gluttony, and finally, lust. At each level, the weight of Dante's proclivity towards sin diminishes until at the very summit of purgatory, his weightless soul now reborn, a tree renewed in bloom with newborn foliage, immaculate, eager to rise, now ready for the stars. At the summit of purgatory, Dante turns and Virgil is gone, replaced by Beatrice. Throughout the Divine Comedy, three persons guide Dante. Virgil, representing reason, guides him through the Inferno and the Purgatorio. Beatrice, representing theology, guides him through the celestial spheres of the Paradiso. And finally, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, representing mysticism, guides him into the pure light of the Empyrean, the mystical rose and the divine heart of God. At this point in the Divine Comedy, language fails Dante utterly. He writes, Bernard then gestured to me with a smile that I look up, but I already was instinctively what he would have me be. For now, my vision, as it grew more clear, was penetrating more and more the ray of that exalted light of truth itself. And from then on, my vision rose to heights higher than words, which fail before such sight. And memory fails, too, at such extremes. As he who sees things in a dream and wakes to feel the passion of the dream still there, although no part of it remains in mind, just such am I. My vision fades and all but ceases, yet the sweetness born of it, I still can feel distilling in my heart. At this point, power failed high fantasy, but like a wheel in perfect balance turning, 
I felt my will and my desire impelled by the love that moves the sun and the other stars. That is a gorgeous ending to the Divine Comedy. Turning back to Matthew 27, 50 to 53, we don't know what happens during the two days between Jesus' death and resurrection. Both scripture and tradition hint at the harrowing of hell, of Jesus descending into the underworld to release the righteous men and women of old, to break the shackles of death binding Adam and Eve, the prophets, the righteous kings, and perhaps the virtuous pagans who lived before Christ and who responded authentically and fully to the eternal Logos with the limited understanding they had. If so, we might wonder if their time in the underworld enlightened them, as it had enlightened Gilgamesh, Odysseus, Aeneas, and Dante. And if it did, we might also imagine their joy as they gazed into the very eyes of love and heard him say to them, it is finished. I end with a postscript. In this reflection, I began with Andrea Montegna's Christ's Descent into Limbo, a tempera and gold on panel from somewhere between 1470 and 1475, a painting now in the hands of a private collector who wishes to remain anonymous. In 2018, a painting long removed from permanent exhibition in the Accademia Carrara in Bergamo, a city about 30 miles north of Milan, had been dismissed as a contemporary copy of a lost Mantegna. However, after careful analysis of the painting by the museum's curator, Dr. Giovanni Valagusa, demonstrated that the painting, The Resurrection of Christ, was indeed an original Mantegna. What's more, it was the top portion of a larger painting that had been cut in half perhaps to fit the space where the painting was to be hung, or more likely to sell each half separately and thus raise more money. I reproduce the resurrection of Christ below. Notice how in joining the two paintings, the stone arch matches exactly, reflecting the sequence of Jesus' resurrection and of his harrowing of hell. Perhaps one day we'll see the two paintings displayed together or better yet, restored to their original condition. One can only hope. Now, if you're listening to this as a podcast, go to my website, logosbiblestudy.com, and look at my blog, The Harrowing of Hell, and I have all the artwork reproduced in the written blog. So thank you for joining me, and I look forward to talking with you once again. Bye-bye now. (laughs) 